China is the world's second largest economy and a major global power. At the core of its national pride and ambition is technological innovation. But the United States and China are competing against each other for international dominance in technologies like cyberspace, and there has been a worrying rise in tensions between them. Today's world relies on global supply chains and collaborations. So what would happen if the USA and China were to decouple their technology? And what would be the consequences for humanity's future? Welcome to Afterwards. I'm Kerry Brown, specialist in Chinese international relations, history and politics, here today talking with Nigel Inkster. Nigel is a British intelligence insider and an expert in foreign policy and security. In his book, The Great Decoupling, he explores China's digital rise and the growing rivalry between China and the United States. So I've read the book recently and I greatly enjoyed it. Nigel has long experience, both of living and working in China, but also of observing it from the United Kingdom. And he has a rich international network of people who he talks to, both inside and outside China, about the way things are there at the moment and the way the world relates to China. So I suppose my first question to Nigel would be, what would you say is the current state of the Chinese-American diplomatic relationship and what direction is it going in? I think that Sino-US diplomatic relations have never been as bad since the depths of the Maoist era. It's really quite shocking how rapidly and extensively they've deteriorated over the last couple of years. And I remember actually attending uh, a conference in the United States at the U.S. Naval War College in the spring of 2018, and I realized then that there had been a kind of seismic shift in U.S. attitudes towards China. We now see a kind of narrative uh, that is very current in the United States to the effect that engagement with China, a policy of engagement with China, has been a failure that far from uh, enabling the emergence of a benign power aligned with the kind of international status quo, what engagement has done is empower an ideologically hostile Marxist regime. And of course, technology has played a major role in that, because I think it's pretty clear, if you look at this from the Chinese side, that they have progressed faster in terms of economic development, military capabilities, and so on, than even they had at their most optimistic imagined. And this really has been about uh, China's readiness to embrace modern technology, particularly information communications technologies, which they've done very enthusiastically, despite the perceived risks that are involved, to the point where they're now challenging U.S., long-held presumptions of, of, of uh, technology supremacy. Things like China's uh, technology national champion Huawei's efforts to become the dominant supplier of fifth-generation mobile technologies. These, I think, have been seen by the United States as a kind of latter-day Sputnik moment a time at which uh, the US faces a technology challenge to which it has no immediate answer, less because the United States has fallen behind China in the basic technologies, that's not the case, but because China has 
launched this all-of-nation effort to become the globally dominant technological power. This asks some fundamental questions of America about itself and how it responds to this challenge, and they're only really now starting to address these issues. People are talking a lot at the moment about the option of decoupling in terms of supply links and kind of our economies, the United States, Europe and China basically having such major differences as you just referred to that they have to kind of just create a dual world basically. But when you kind of think about the practicalities of this and the way in which we're so embedded with each other's economies and integrated, I mean, how does that work for technology? And what is the problem if, as you've just alluded to, China's technology suddenly becomes deeply attractive for us? Well, I mean, the short answer is nobody really knows. We've not done anything like this before. The history of uh, Sino-US relations over the last 40 years has been one of growing entanglement. You know, US technology majors have driven the major developments, but they've been able to benefit from making use of China as a kind of global workshop, enjoying the economies of scale, and also earning a lot of revenue from technology sales to China, particularly in areas like advanced microchips and software. At the same time, if we look at an area like artificial intelligence, which is a topic that covers a multitude of sins, but essentially machine learning, we see that a lot of the work that's being done in US universities in Silicon Valley is actually being done by Chinese scientists. And so, you know, there is a deep entanglement. I mean, people talk about, for example, the surveillance technologies that China is deploying in places like Xinjiang. This discourse tends to overlook the extent to which it is United States technology companies that have provided a lot of the capabilities that China is now using. So disentangling this is going to be a phenomenal undertaking. I think one study that I referred to in the book estimated that a total technology decoupling between the USA and China could take seven or eight years and cost three and a half trillion dollars. We're only talking about the kind of identifiable, quantifiable costs. This doesn't take account of the, I think, equally, if not more important, unquantifiable costs of a dramatic drop in international scientific and technology exchanges, which have kind of fueled the rapid technological evolution we've, we've been witnessing, nor do they take full account of all the costs of having to reduplicate systems, in the American case, losses of revenue, both because they've got to reinvent the wheel and rebuild in America capabilities that already exist, because they'd be losing revenue from sales to China. That translates into less money for research and development. Now, at a global level, if you're not China and you're not America, you're facing the potential prospect of having to choose between one or other sets of technology. In the case of 5G, for example, do you use Huawei or do you go with Nokia or uh, other Western options? Or do you actually have to have both systems operating? Particularly, this would be, apply if China made progress with its alternative version of the internet. Which one would you use? I mean, all this is happening, of course, at a time when 
we've kind of seen a peaking of the globalization process that was relaunched after the end of the Cold War. And the coronavirus, I think, has had a catalytic impact here because people have realized just how vulnerable to disruption these global supply chains are. I mean, they're immensely complicated, these supply chains, to the point where nobody really knows what all the links amount to or where the potential vulnerabilities are. And it's turned out that when it comes to significant elements of global supplies, China is the single point of failure. China stops producing or withholds production or supply. We all suffer. We saw this with medical equipment in the coronavirus context. But there was a Henry Jackson study done recently which highlighted that Western countries were dependent for China on literally hundreds of strategic products. So I think that you know, a, a rethink was due in any case. It is now happening. It is gathering pace. It's driven by all sorts of considerations, business considerations, profit and loss, but also geopolitics. Geopolitics is playing a role. We see this with 5G. We look at the case of the United Kingdom, which was originally preparing to incorporate Huawei into the edge of its 5G networks. And this, incidentally, is something when the British Signals Intelligence Agency, GCHQ, looked at this and concluded that it was a, a secure option, their American colleagues agreed with them. They were entirely in agreement that this was a feasible option. But then came the political pressure, and all of a sudden the UK was not incorporating Huawei into its 5G networks anymore. So it's a very complex process, and it's further complicated by the fact that we can't confidently predict how these technologies are going to evolve. That is a major, in Donald Rumsfeld's speak, known unknown that we also have to try and factor in. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the unique things that you offer in your book and also in your work is that you were engaging with China very early. I mean, mm. in the, I believe you first went in the 1970s or 1980s. Um, I went in 1976. Uh, I right. arrived the day after the Gang of Four had been arrested. Right, okay. Mm. So so if you're an extreme leftist in China, be wary when Nigel Inkster turns up in your country. You, you, you better hide. Yeah. Oh, you better <laughs> be that... wary when I turn up in your country anywhere. I'm the kind of Kate Aidy <laughs> of the intelligence world. <laughs> so basically, in that time, was there a point in which you started to think, ah, they might not change the political system in China in quite the way that one would assume. I mean, you obviously were there over the period of the kind of late 70s reforms, you know, the sort of 80s. I think you were there in 89 during the uprising. Hmm. And was there a moment when you looked at what was happening and thought, this is not really easy to predict because we might believe that there is a nice pleasant trajectory towards political liberalisation or pluralism, but actually this is a bit kind of more tricky because I think that's underlying a lot of what you're writing about and a lot of what lots of people are thinking about at the moment, this sort of assumption that we engage, we deal with China and, you know, we open up as much as we can to each other because there's only one real story that's going to be end up being told and that's, you know, China that has to change. When did you start becoming suspicious that, that might not be the case or did you not did you sort of feel that no this has got to 
uh, go the way we think? And, and do you still, you know, sort of feel that today even? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we've seen uh, during reform and opening up a kind of uh, tidal process, you know, during the you know, mid 1980s, we saw a period of remarkable openness and experimentation when China was really reaching out from all around the world, looking for ideas you know, to help their modernization process. But I think you know, 1989, you know, the June 4th incident came as a kind of salutary shock to those who were excessively optimistic about how China might progress. And I actually remember in the run-up to the June the 4th, the UK Joint Intelligence Committee did an assessment looking at what would happen. And I remember you know, vividly the opening words of that particular assessment, this will end in tears. Because you know, we, we'd seen you know, Deng Xiaoping getting in contact with all the commanders of the military regions and saying, back me or it's all over for the Communist Party. That was a kind of salutary lesson. But then after that, we saw another period of relative liberalization. I didn't live in China during the late 1990s or early 2000s, but I went there very frequently. And there, you know, one felt a kind of warm breeze of openness and modernization. But that began to change as China grew, realized it was growing, and began to think rather differently about its role in the world. And actually, I think for me, a moment of epiphany came around 2007. I'd left government. I was uh, just joined um, the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I was talking to State Councillor Dai Bingguo, who had turned up on a visit, you know, talking about where China was going. And Dai was still very much pushing, you know, the, the peaceful rise, hide and bide narrative. And I said to him, State Councillor, I, I don't think this is how it's going to play out because basically you, you've outgrown this model. You, know, you may not be intent on pursuing global hegemony, but the United Kingdom wasn't intent on painting 25% of the world pink when it started out. As the man said, it happened in a fit of absence of mind. And I think you'll find you're caught up in a dynamic that takes you places you didn't plan to be or particularly want to be. And when it happens, the one thing I can assure you based on our experience and that of the Americans is that everybody will want a piece of you and everybody will hate you. And I kind of think that's pretty much where we're headed. China throughout history has been characterized by these periods of relative liberalization and then all of a sudden taking fright and, you know, pulling up the drawbridge. And we seem to be very much in a pulling up drawbridge mode at the moment. One of the things I suppose, uh, uh, after looking at your book, I was inspired to do was to sort of go back a bit into the further past and the European engagement with China. And I'm sort of struck by this encounter with a place called Deep China, you know, these sort of deep underlying roots to Chinese thinking. I was looking at Montesquieu, the spirit of laws written in the 18th century, and he writes on not quite a lot about China. These are not comments that I would remotely endorse, but one thing he says is that it's very remarkable that the Chinese, whose lives are guided by rights, are nevertheless the greatest cheats on earth. So he writes this, and then um, he says something actually which I think we should attend to, which is 
about this sort of difference of moral view. He says, everyone in China is obliged to be attentive to what will be for their advantage. If the cheat has been watchful over his interests, it is the dupe who ought to be attentive to theirs. And I suppose his point is that Chinese negotiation view would be, if you're daft enough to agree to something, then that's your problem. So on the issue of technology, I guess to frame it in a contemporary way, did we merit being done over? I mean, have we been done over? Has it been that China has undertaken amazing technological kind of asymmetrical deals or theft? And is it now that we're kind of saying, ah, this wasn't fair, when in fact it was somewhat naive of us to engage with this, and now we are confronted with a China which is doing really, really well? Well, I mean, this is something that I found when I was in the States in 2018. You know, the, again, the, the other narrative was exactly that. We've been duped. We've been taken for a ride. It's a sort of Michael Pillsbury 100-year marathon thesis. You know, China has been pulling the wool over our eyes and uh, playing us. I mean, I like Michael a lot but I'm not sure I entirely agree with his thesis. No, I think it's more complicated than that. I mean, you know, the reality is that uh, these technologies always end up getting transferred. I mean, you, you, I mean, in my book, I cite the example of... Uh, the theft of uh, silk weaving techniques from Italy in the 18th century and the way that that gave rise, you know, helped produce the Industrial Revolution in the UK when these techniques were combined with Britain's emerging steam-driven mechanisation capabilities. We always get rising powers will always end up acquiring the technology that is initially controlled by incumbent powers. That's just the way of the world. The problem is, as so much else with China, you know, China's size and throw weight results in consequences which are qualitatively different from what would be the case if China was just a normal-sized country. So could we have reasonably withheld these technologies from China, as we did during the Cold War through the COCOM process, no, I don't think we could. You know, when China was not a country that was in avowedly revolutionary mode, not preaching the overthrow of our system and actually saying, no, we want to join it, could we legitimately or morally have sought to withhold these technologies? And I don't think that would have been realistic. But of course, we did share the key technology, which was the internet, with China at a time when in the West, attitudes towards the internet were infused with what in retrospect is a kind of naive optimism about uh, how this technology would benefit humanity and we'd all link hands and uh, walk off towards the sunlit uplands. But it hasn't turned out like that. Where we have also been particularly naive, and in my view, criminally negligent, is the way in which large corporations, particularly in, but not exclusively in the United States, have been horrendously negligent of the digital value of their enterprises and made no effort to really secure their data and their databases when the risks and threat of not doing so became abundantly clear. And again, I cite the example in the book of Nortel, Canadian telecommunications organisation, which at one point was the biggest and most consequential on the planet, and which within 10 years had been absolutely stripped bare by China to the point where it ended up declaring bankruptcy. People knew that 
Nortel secrets were being systematically stolen. You know, the chief security officer, Brian Shields, raised the alarm about this. The Canadian Intelligence Service raised the alarm about it. Nortel executives weren't listening. And I think a lot of this is about the way in which a lot of Western corporations have fallen into what I call the woolen vest trap. You know, as somebody in the 19th century said, I don't know who, if every Chinaman sick bought one woolen vest, the mills of Lancashire would never stop turning. Well, you know, there are not many mills turning in Lancashire these days, at least not to my knowledge. What I mean is there's blind pursuit of short-term gain without thinking about the longer-term consequences. China can't be blamed for that. I guess one of the things that I've noticed, though, is technology is such a broad term. There is this idea that I think in the past, we had it and China didn't. You know, we had a sort of technology surplus. China had a technology deficit. And I think that was also about intellectual sort of deficit and surplus, that we as Europeans, Americans, were stronger. And it seems that we're now kind of looking at China, as you just said, there are many areas where it is really proving advanced artificial intelligence. Things like this are really, really strong in China. Is that partly because of the fact that, to put it crudely, there is a different kind of ethical viewpoint maybe in China, almost like a sort of, well, you'd say it's transactional, pragmatic. You know, you kind of find areas of research which we would be very, very (laughs) wary about. The case a couple of years ago of DNA editing, basically, in uh, southeast China. Is it that what we might think as amoral research is actually a strength and maybe something that we also engage with in Europe and America, you know, in the past, if you think of the horrible stories in the Second World War, of you know, kind of live experiments. I mean, is this something that China has sort of got an advantage and that although it's morally kind of abhorrent, some of these sort of issues, alas, it gives it a real edge. I'm not sure about that, to be quite honest. I mean, you know, firstly, I would say it's very difficult to gauge in any area of technology, exactly where China is vis-a-vis the United States, because there is so much hype involved. So when somebody like Pan Jianwei, you know, transports a couple of photons for any distance, you know, the, it's headline news. And actually, when you look at it, it's not quite such a big deal. But having said that, I mean, the fact is that, you know, that China is advancing in leaps and bounds. You know, there are, I think, you know, if you look at discourse within China's own scientific community, there are still significant concerns about the extent to which China remains weak in foundational science and pursues science uh, for purely utilitarian ends. You know, I mean, China has won Nobel Prize for science, and that was uh, a lady doctor who was researching malaria. This is something that China's own scientific community are, are very seized of and very concerned about. But the fact is that China is moving very rapidly. And yes, you're absolutely right. There have been some activities undertaken in China that are ethically highly questionable. But the case you cite of uh, gene editing of uh, embryos did actually elicit not just a huge reaction from within China's own scientific community, but it also resulted in, in judicial action against the doctor who performed those activities. So I think in a place as big as China, you're always going to get a certain amount of unethical behavior. I mean, hell, you know, there's plenty of it around, as you say, in, in the United States, uh, in Europe. I mean, uh, 
I remember in the 1950s experiments uh, with um, LSD using, and I quote from the official record, low-grade national servicemen, unquote, as guinea pigs without their knowledge. They were told, you know, this is to help find a cure for the common cold. You know, people who live in glass houses need to be a bit careful about throwing stones. But my sense is that China is moving very rapidly in all areas here. It's what the French call rouler les étapes. They are achieving outcomes in the course of years that has taken us decades to do. And that is not just in the science and technology, but I think also in the mindset that goes with it. I mean, I was very struck, for example, at the end of 2018, I was uh, invited to speak at a very interesting seminar in the National Defence Technical University in Changsha on the implications of artificial intelligence for statecraft and intelligence. And we had there a very large and diverse group of young Chinese academics, both practitioners on the technology side, but also those involved in a sort of policy uh, area, if you will. And there was a very lively and vigorous debate about the ethics and legality of artificial intelligence. So these issues are under discussion. And I don't think we can just say, oh, well, China's completely immoral and this gives them an edge because they don't care what they do. It's more complicated than that. In this sort of issue of how Chinese see technology or kind of science, on May the 28th, 2018, Xi Jinping gave a talk at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And one of the things that's striking about his speech is how he sees technology as a sort of global phenomena. I mean, still very much a global phenomena. In the world in which China might become a very significant sort of holder of its own technology, what kind of negotiation would we be able to undertake to kind of say to it, how do you, you know, share this technology? How do we, could we reverse engineer some of the things that China's accused of doing in the past? Do we have the sort of negotiation tactic where we can say it's in your interest to share this technology? Or are we basically going to see a decoupling world that works in China's favour because it's basically going to say, we've got the stuff we need now, you can basically just bog off because, you know, we're the winners and uh, we're going to keep hold of things. How do you see these scenarios working out? I think it depends very much on the technology. There will be some things China will not want to share. There will be some things that China actively sees it as being in its interest to share. And one of the things that it will want to share is, if it gets off the ground, China's version of the internet, which is an internet effectively with border controls and health checks. And that would be very much in China's interest for everyone else to have, because uh, we would all then end up doing a lot of China's dirty work in terms of preventing the flow of information that China finds um, unwelcome. So from that point of view, yes, I mean, when when we're talking about something like quantum encryption, on the other hand, I, I don't see China being in too much of a hurry to share those kinds of technology. So I think in each case, there's going to be a calculation to be made. Of course, you know, the one area in which there will be role reversal is that we'll be desperately trying to steal Chinese IP and try to regenerate the ground that we might by then have lost. And on the Great Decoupling, why did you write it? Why did you feel that it was something that needed to be written at the moment? You know, what, what was your motivation? 
The honest answer is that uh, Michael Dwyer, <laughs> who runs Hearst, uh, invited me uh, for a very nice lunch and said that he'd been talking with some people in government who said I knew stuff about this and uh, maybe I should write a book. And at that point, I kind of thought that I'd written the book. I wrote a book in 2016 called China Cyberpower for IISS which I think was quite prescient in some ways in terms of describing what China was up to. And then I thought, okay, obviously, if I do write this book, I've got to do something rather different. And what maybe I need to do, which is what I tried to do, is to sort of set this in a broader cultural and historical context, starting with China as a major science and technology power, as described by Joseph Needham in his uh, magisterial set of volumes. Needham was starting to produce when I was an undergraduate at Oxford, so we were well aware of the basics. And I thought, you know, this is, I think, a very interesting trajectory, because in essence, with the arrival of the West in the mid-19th century, China literally went from hero to zero overnight, this proud civilization that until that point had been seen as one of the most advanced and prosperous and stable civilizations on the planet was suddenly just completely adrift, pilloried as the sick man of Asia and so on and so forth. And I thought the story of how China sought to achieve a modern identity whilst not losing sight of its own cultural heritage was something that people in the West in particular needed to understand a lot better. You know, this was a time when there was a lot of instant wisdom about China, particularly coming out of Washington, largely devoid of uh, historical or cultural context. And I guess this book was an attempt by me to sort of set the record straight. Great. Well, we finish every show by asking our guest about one text, mm. be that film or book or otherwise that influenced this book. Nigel, what was yours? Well, the interesting thing when I started doing the serious research on this book was how much I found it valuable to reread some of the older sinological classics. I mean, talking about Fairbanks, you know, Jonathan Spence, you know, Philip Kuhn, people like that, you know, these sort of older generation of sinologists. And I found there was an enormous amount of important wisdom there that gave very valuable clues to contemporary China. But the book that I thought perhaps made the biggest impact on me, was uh, one written by one of my teachers at Oxford, Mark Elvin, called The Retreat of the Elephants, which uh, is described in the subtitle as an environmental history of China, but is in fact much, much more. It contains an enormous range of erudition about China through the ages. It's an environmental history, it's a cultural history, it's an economic history, And I found in there much valuable food for thought. I mean, Mark Elvin was a brilliant and inspiring teacher. You know, one of these people, you know, who's so brilliant, it's impossible to keep up with them. Just have to try not to fall too far behind. The kind of ideas that Mark put into my head, I'm sure he doesn't realise it, really kind of stayed with me and were crystallised in this particular volume. I mean, I've run out of doors that need opening, need to be held open. And Mark's book is something of a house brick, but it's definitely, as they would say in the Michelin Guide, vol de tour. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. Thank you to Nigel Inkster for taking part in this episode. You can buy The Great Decoupling now from Hearst Publishers' website. For more, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers, Nigel at Nigel Inkster, 
and me at bkerrychina on Twitter. And to get news on the latest Hearst books, subscribe to their email updates at hearstpublishers.com. I'm Kerry Brown of the Lao China Institute, King's College London. Thank you for listening. Thank you.